J.F. Lawton had been writing screenplays and trying to break into Hollywood for years. Do you think that would have happened if he hadn't met you? My belief is that J.F. Lawton was so profoundly talented. I see this in a number of people in front of and behind the camera that eventually I have to, I hope and believe that he would have made it. But one of the things I would say is at the time I was more manager than producer when I met him, lit manager. And you're right, he had, uh, you know, he was living in a one room studio apartment in the Rampart District of Hollywood. Back then, a very, let's just say, colorful, if not dangerous, uh, experience on a day to day basis. And he had dropped out of film school. And I'm not sure if I've shared this before, but he, the way we met was I had bought one of the early Macintosh computers and a screenwriter friend of mine was working on one, but you couldn't just plug them in and work on them. Someone had to program them. And I said, how did you make it work? And they said, hire Jonathan. So I did. Three weeks in my office, full time, round the clock, asking me every question about learning everything that I did and me suggesting these are the kinds of programs that I would need. And he was really brilliant and really lovely, but he was quiet. But I became fond of him over the three weeks. And in some conversation toward the end, I started asking him more questions. And I learned that he was earning his livelihood in two ways. One, he was beta testing software and writing up articles in these computer magazines. Uh, he was installing computer systems for film, a lot of entertainment companies on the one hand. And on the other hand, he was uh, late at night editing trailers for the B movies that came out of Canon Pictures back in the day. Well, when I learned that, I thought, well, so clearly you have an interest in the entertainment space. And then I found he had gone to film school. He let, let me know he had written seven scripts that were sitting in a stack in the corner of his studio apartment that not a single human had read. His father was a, an author, an academician, a, real, a man of letters. So Jonathan came by it naturally. Um, so to answer your question, um, when we met, I read a bunch, several of his scripts and I said, you're really, you're, you're talented. Rather than refer you to an agent, I want to work with you. <clears throat> but these scripts are as good as they are and as much as they evidence your talent, they're a little bit quirky. Um, and what I would like to uh, have as a means of introducing you in a meaningful way to the community because we all live in a steady diet of hope and expectation that we're going to discover the next great voice, the next great project, the next great artist. Um, that's a critical energy. And so I wanted to be able to frame him in a certain way and have a certain quality of screenplay. And um, so I asked him, I said, I want to work with you, but it's not a condition, but I would really like it if you would create on spec a new screenplay. And I would like that screenplay optimally to be a romance. I don't care if it's a comedy or drama. And the reason I chose that is because when you learn about someone's personal story, it, you can zero in on things. And in his instance, uh, he was 23 at the time, quite young. And he had been in a relationship. Uh, he met a young lady when he was 18. And they'd been in a five-year relationship and he was still madly in love with her as she had just left the relationship. To say that he was sad would be an understatement. And 
not to be masochistic, but honestly, I thought who would write a better romance at this particular moment than this young man? So I asked him to give me a romance. And I just a classic two-hander, good male, good female role, no exploding bridges, nothing expensive. Like if I needed to make this very inexpensively independently, we could do that. Um, and that's, so he went away and he came back and it wasn't long. I don't remember. I would say two and a half months with the first draft of what was then called 3000, the script that eventually got transformed into Pretty Woman from drama to comedy. And um, without question, it was the single most refined first draft I think I've ever had held in my hand. Uh, it was really compelling. And I knew as soon as, and, and I decided it was so good, I wasn't, there were, I gave no notes and I started to introduce it very selectively. And the feedback was so um, consistently, um, to say enthusiastic would be, people were wowed. So I knew we had the calling card. We had the, the welcome mat to introduce him to the, to the larger community. Um, so I think given, given his talent, he would have gotten there. I think I gave it a nudge. Um, and, um, and that was my sort of specialty was knowing how to present and introduce someone new to the business. So together, I think we, we accelerated the process. What a wonderful story. What year was this? Um, I'm going to say it was right around 1984. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. I believe. Interesting. Wow. So you saw in him this sort of reserved, maybe genius, but just needed some nudging. And you wanted to see several scripts of his, correct, before you actually made a commitment? He reminds me that what I actually said to him was, let me read one of your scripts. And if I like it, I'll help you find an agent, which was a very genuine um, comment on my part. I would, would have been happy to do so. Well, as it turns out, I read one and then I said, this is really interesting. Do you have another? And he gave me another. I ended up reading three. Unbeknownst to me, he was being very, I would say intentional because he was giving me these scripts in the order in which he'd written them. So they kept getting better. And by the third, I said, you know, Jonathan, let's you and I collaborate. I'd like to represent you. I'd like to work with you. And he was delighted. And that was the end of the conversation other than, you know, what next? Um, so yeah, we, we, we had an extraordinary uh, rapport and um, I would say that he, people bandy about the word genius quite casually. I would say he was, he was quite, he, he was what would be my definition of a creative genius. Um, and, the, and then of course the next project that he wrote on spec was a result of a lunch that we had together. And the more I dug into finding out who he was and what his life experience was, his family life and all of that, I learned that he had been, he had done, he'd been in the military. I've never been in the military. So to me, that's a very alluring world. It's sort of a fascinating world to me. And Jonathan had um, served in the Coast Guard Reserve. And he did that. 
He was in active service at the time that the Olympics were about to come to Los Angeles, which was many, many years ago. I have no idea what year that was. Uh, probably the very early 80s, I would think. And um, I started to ask him about what was that? Tell me, what, what did you do? What, where did you serve? Uh, were you on a, I called it a boat. It was a ship, right? Uh, and he, he just sort of regaled me with these stories of what it was, you know, and they had received counter-terrorist training because of the Olympics, so they had a very intensive program. And the more he talked, the more I leaned in. I was absolutely riveted by it. At which point, at the end of the lunch, I said, Jonathan, I need you, I need you. Would you be willing to write a story set in that world? And that was the story that was the foundation for Under Siege. And that's where he learned his uh, IT skills? Was, was in, in uh, the Coast Guard? Did they, did they teach him? <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that's oh, a true I statement. I really don't. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. And did you see where he would write his scripts in this little uh, apartment off Rampart? I saw his apartment, and um, he was on the ground floor, the front corner of the building, with windows facing on the alley. He was right on an on the alleyway. Oh, wow. And the visual tapestry on a day-to-day -day basis was, um, I, I, I don't want to characterize it, I don't want to judge it, but it was a constant parade of police and working girls and drug dealers and pimps and homeless, etc. And it was because of the part of town he was in, that was, a, that was just the way it was on a persistent basis. Um, so as a backdrop to the original script that was 3000, it was like almost like the perfect input, right? It was, because the original was, uh, you know, everyone say, oh, it was very dark. Well, it was, it, it was darker and it was edgy, but you know, it's not like people died and, and you know, it was, but it, but it, it I believe it did reflect the world he was actually living in at the time. Fascinating. Very fascinating. Thinking back, without J.F. Lawton, how would you attribute your success? Had you not met him, had it not been the right time, how do you see your career being different? Um, well, I'm eternally grateful for having met him. Um, and we did accomplish a great deal. And, and, and not everything that we did, of course, got produced, as is the case for everybody. But... I was really fortunate. I, I came without filters. I came from San Francisco from being a criminal defense lawyer. Um, I had a, a burning desire to be in the film and storytelling business, the visual storytelling business, uh, but I didn't have the knowledge to back it up. I didn't have mentors. I didn't know anyone in LA when I moved here. So I was sort of like this blank slate, a, a, just a big white canvas. And um, so my, my mission was to befriend and just chat up anybody and everybody and make, as far as I'm concerned, the world, I wanted everyone in the world to be my five minute mentor. Um, and then I started, you know, I made the decision to open a literary, uh, shang hang a shingle as a literary manager and rented the offices, and got the furniture and got the assistant and got all the, the attributes of it. And I remember sitting one day looking at the phone on my desk with my feet up on the desk, staring at the phone for hours and it never once rang. And I thought, oh, I've forgotten something. I don't have a plan and I don't have a network. And I got busy. And one of the 
things that was at the top of the totem as a priority was I need, I need to find great people as clients. That said, I was so new that I wasn't sure I, I, I would recognize what, you know, other than we're all great judges as humans of a good story. But in terms of the structure and how it's crafted and all of that, I was still learning. But I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use the, my best sense to figure it out. But at the same time, it's really important to me that I find people that I find very attractive as souls, as, as artists, as, you know, like there's, a, there, there's something really wonderfully unique about them. And I was fortunate to sign as clients. I didn't actually sign. In fairness, that's not true. I never had agreements. Um, my, you know, my philosophy was very simple. I had to earn my keep every day. I would work hard every day representing someone in, in, in an effort to launch, make their dream a reality. And on their side of the bargain, they had to work every bit as hard, not just writing, but making themselves known as best they could, creating their own relationships, right, on a parallel track. Um, and I did sign, I did sign, I keep saying sign, but I didn't. Uh, so it was a handshake. Anytime they were dissatisfied, they were welcome to leave. Uh, but I had a lot of very long, many year enduring relationships. And it turns out that several of them, Jonathan was not the only great success story. There were quite a few. Um, um, you know, Alison Burnett's done, he's written, been produced 15 times. He's produced a few of those. He's directed several of those. You know, Matt Reeves um, and his then writing partner. Um, gosh, they had minimal resume. They had some. Uh, but Matt's gone on to direct, you know, and produce and write War for the Planet of the Apes. He did the one before that. I forget the name of that franchise or that episode. Uh, he's doing the next, the Batman that's coming out next year. Uh, so there's a number of these people that started out with me that were really quite, um, you know, they were wonderful people and they were truly gifted. Not all of them, but quite a number of them went on to have what I would call meaningful, enduring careers. What was the original version of Pretty Woman? The original version was Title 3000, spelled out, which was the number of dollars that Edward pays Vivian for her companionship for the week. Um, it was a drama. It was not a picture where boy and girl end up together. Um, and... Um, in, in, in some ways, it was a much more realistic story. Um, and I think it was very reflective of the writer's sort of, the world that he lived in and the way he was feeling about things at the time. Um, but there was something undeniably, here's what I would say about it. Jonathan, when he was in film school, he kept writing these very complex, really interesting leading women characters. And I remember one of our early conversations before we started working together, he led on that one of his professors, presumably a male as I recall, wagged his finger at him and basically said, you know, leave that alone. Let the women write women characters. You focus on blah, blah, which was like waving a red flag in front of a bull. Uh, John, one of the things I'd say that we shared in common was a certain reverence for women. And that showed up in all of his scripts, no matter how, and they were all flawed. 
but they were absolutely magnificent. And one of the things I would say about his character, his women lead, lead, lead women characters, was that they were inevitably the moral superior in every given in a given story. And I would say that was one of the things that really stood out for me in this sort of grittier world of Hollywood. Uh, or the collision of these two worlds, the investment banker from New York and the girl from the streets of Hollywood, coming together, this unlikely duo, where he had a certain wound, a certain skepticism, a certain you know agenda uh, based on his relationship with his dad and his life experience, his current girlfriend. And then she, despite her circumstances, was this ineffable spirit who had this sort of moral code. Um, she was just a delightful character um, who was making the best of her circumstances. And it, it, there, there was something so alluring to me about her in this original script 3000. So while it didn't end well, I just saw that the relationship and who she was was such an unexpected construction and I, uh, so I, 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 I figure I'm like a really good audience. I'm like, I am almost like the perfect audience to read a script. I, I, I don't read it. When I get a script, I never read it as if I'm the producer. I try not to read it as if I'm the director or the financier or the distributor or any of those hats. Um, the closest thing I would say is I try to read it as if I'm going to be the lead actor. Um, but more importantly, I try to read it as if I am the audience, because that's ultimately who I am, right? And that script was was I, I, a, a must-see story for me. So my belief in it was a thousand percent. It was like I, it wouldn't matter how many no's I heard. That was going to be I was going to do anything possible to get that film made. And originally, it was intended to be made as as scripted as a lower budgeted, you know, several million dollar independent film because it was set in just a room in a hotel, right? We, we didn't have a lot of production value to worry about. Um, but the, I guess the, the authenticity of both the lead characters was so undeniable. Uh, it was written like he knew these people deeply. And then the supporting cast, um, Jonathan had a gift as well. There's no such thing as a secondary character. They may be supporting. <clears throat> they may not have a, have a lot of dialogue or page count. But no one in that story is not important. So the hotel manager, even the elevator operator, you know, even before it became a comedy, you could see these we were witnessing with and through the eyes of these people, and they were so interesting on their in their own right. So it was. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it was absolutely a mesmerizing read. How obsessed were you with the screenplay when you first read it? I wish I could take you back to the moment I closed the script cover because I was I. It was a script that I. Um, I I know that if I can't stop reading which I didn't, I read it cover to cover in one sitting, uh, which is not that extraordinary, but, uh, but it's a good sign. Uh, but when I know when I closed the screen cover, I was speechless. Like I had just experienced something, 
probably the most special script at that young juncture of my career that I'd read to date. Um, and I could see it. It's, it's, there's something about a brilliant screenplay that draws you and it takes you on a journey that is so detailed and, and, and emotive uh, where the characters are so different or unexpected um, that you feel yourself literally being pulled into the story. And um, that was the case with 3000. It was certainly, I was, I was devastated at the end, but apart from the being devastated because of the reality of the story and the experience of the characters, when I closed that script cover, I was a bit stunned into silence. Like, I know I have a movie. I, for the first time, you know, I, this is like, I want this to be a movie I produced. It's the first time I said that to myself. Um, and um, I, I don't really, you know, honestly, it's almost like you go blank after that. And I don't remember all the particular conversations that we had, but I know I immediately reached out to Jonathan and said, I am so happy we're working together. <laughs> this, is, this is a special script. Scripts are fascinating creatures. And sometimes there's something that really stands out. It might be a particular character. It might be the world. It might be the descriptions. It could be dialogue. It could be. There was something about 3000 where the whole of it was just right. And all of it drew me in. Um, what was interesting was when I finished reading it, I was so excited and yet I was also very pragmatic. I realized I was still relatively new in the business. Um, I mean, certainly I hadn't produced, um, except for a couple of micro budget little, you know, but I hadn't produced anything the world knew. And Jonathan was still relatively unknown. He was not yet an established name. But what I held in my hand merited a lot of attention. And the question was, how do I get from here to there? How do I create that energy? And the one thing that occurred to me was, I think this is such an artful, compelling, beautifully crafted story that it lives at the level of the early, like extremely rarefied atmosphere that was Sundance Institute. So I called up, um, I had befriended Michelle Satter, who was, you know, sat at the right hand of Robert Redford since day one, building the institute, building the festival, and all that, all that it had become. And they had all these beautiful labs and workshops, and they had one called the Production Lab, where they would pick, I don't know, a limited number, eight, ten, perhaps, uh, projects, and invite them once a year. It was maybe a week-long event, and you would go to Utah and you would workshop the project, meaning you would have A-level talent show up, uh, all these resource people would show up for free, editors, cinematographers, actors, you name it. And so you would take that script and break it down and you'd start sh videotaping scenes with these actors and sort of trying to, you know, um, find what's working, how to improve it, et cetera. So I sent it to Michelle and she, um, quite quickly called me back and said, I want this project. I want you, I want to invite you guys to um, come as the writer producer. So we did. And um, it was one of those exalted moments 
that you'll never forget because when you're still relatively, you know, you're, you're at the lower end of the ladder, you're climbing the ladder, and then you're invited to Sundance, already amazing. But beyond that, one day I remember I could I see the scene. I'm sitting there and there are actors and there are the video cameras and Jonathan's there and a bunch of other people. And we have these wonderful actors playing Edward and Vivian. And we shot a scene and suddenly a, I hear a voice whispering notes in my ear. What if? And I look just to like I thought I was dreaming. This man that was whispering in my ear was Paul Hirsch, editor of Star Wars, editor of, you know, an Oscar winning, you know, like 50 of the greatest films ever. And he is offering me creative notes. It was like I died and gone to heaven. It was a, a magical experience to see this sort of come to life in that venue. And of course, Hollywood took notice that was the whole idea. Well, one of the inciting ideas was I want people to, I want this in the trades. I want people to see that by association, this is a quality project. Uh, and that, and it worked. The phone started ringing. People were very interested. It started to have this sort of create this, this cause to lead this buzz, this energy. Um, The script had a consistent, it's been taught in film schools, it, it had that sort of consistent response. It was one of those rare scripts that sort of hits everybody where they live. Everyone can relate to the humanity of this story. And um, so we were very blessed that way. And the, that, you know, obviously like every film, it travels a very twisted journey and it goes off the cliff here and it dies by a thousand paper cuts over there. and and so on, but you stay with it. And um, I don't know if I've ever shared the, the I sent it, we, I'd optioned it to Vestron and then I got it back out and then I optioned it to New Regency and we were still stalled. We couldn't get it financed or cast. Richard had, Richard Garrett turned the project down. Um, and during that time, back when I was at Vestron, I had friends, Mark and Scott, who produced Mystic Pizza, which is, just such a brilliant film. And when the lights came up of this little friends and family screening to get feedback before they locked picture, um, I, had, I had no criticism to offer, but I saw this girl on the screen and I said, I, I don't know who she is, but will you introduce me? And that was Julia Roberts. And they did, they were very kind. And um, Julia and her then manager read it and was attached for three years before we actually went into production. But unexpectedly, because Hollywood is nothing if not non-linear, right? It's full of surprise. So I sent it to someone I had known when he was a junior, a lesser executive somewhere, and then he became a senior VP at Touchstone. And I sent it as a writing sample, saying this is not Disney material, it's about a prostitute. Um, but you're gonna absolutely flip. You're gonna fall in love with the craft. This writer is someone you need to know. And we're gonna come in a week hence, you'll read it, we'll come in next week, and we will pitch you a couple of more Disney appropriate stories. And it was only several days before the phone rang and, and, and the call was, we wanna buy it. And I was taken a little aback. And I said, gosh, um, are we talking about the same script? 
Well, we were. And um, I mean, there's a, there's a lesson in this for everyone in this business. Like you cannot know what's happening behind the curtain. You don't know all the forces or influences that are at play. Disney uh, Touchstone, in this case, had a uh, the wonderful project, What About Bob? And it was going into production with Gary Marshall directing and Diane Crittenden casting and the full Laura Ziskin line producing. And they had the full team. And at that time, Michael Keaton was the lead actor. Well, the deal went awry. I don't know the details, but the deal went awry. So production was sidelined. And they thought, gosh, we have Gary, we have this team assembled. And they looked at our script and thought, great, we'll create a marriage. So there was this meeting a week later that was no longer a pitch meeting. It was about, we want to buy this script. And we just want to know, can you lighten it? And the question actually from the president of the studio was, on the Disney lightness scale, this is a four and we'd like it to be a seven. Can you do that? And I answered, absolutely, yes, we can do that. Um, because it was pretty evident what they were asking. And um, as a result, we not only inherited, I, I mean, I, I'm not so brilliant that I would have thought of Gary Marshall directing this particular film. And we were fortunate because I'd never had a big studio, uh, a major director and a deep pocket. So I went back to Richard Gere's agent, Ed Lamato, and said, please, because Ed loved the project. Would you go back to Richard now? And the studio backed it and they made him the, the sort of the godfather offer that you couldn't refuse. And so Richard finally said yes. And the beauty of that was they'd been auditioning and meeting and screen testing um, many, many, many actors, both for the male and female lead. And, you know, it's, it's, there's sort of a lot of, it's, it's public information. There's, you know, the long list of name actors and actresses who, who, who sort of paraded through. Um, and fortunately, many of them declined, um, either passed on it or whatever, for whatever reason, it didn't happen. Uh, but Julia was not on their radar. She was like an unknown actress at the time. She had shot Steel Magnolias, but it hadn't come out. Uh, and she was so, you know, Mystic Pizza, wonderful movie, but she was not yet sort of well known to either the public or, or, or the studios. Um, but now with Richard, if you have your anchor tenant, right, then it was like, okay, now uh, this is possible, just maybe. I just wanted them to screen test together. That would have been all my dream, right? And uh, so I, you know, I lobbied and said, you know, this is, but it had to be Gary Marshall. And the idea was, Gary, meet her alone, just the two of you, and you're going to fall in love. And that happened. So when Gary Marshall versus Gary Goldstein says to the C-suite of Hollywood, of, of a major studio, this is my girl, I want to screen test, it happened. And once they did, it was, it, it was so undeniable. So the journey of a film is so uh, unknowable, so unpredictable, and that we ended up with our dream cast, and it turns out a dream director I didn't know was even in my dream. 
uh, is it, it's, you know, it's the stuff that you can't, you can't make up it just happens. So 3000 was initially in a kind of a one room scenario, maybe a hotel room. It was in a hotel, mm -hmm. um, very simple locations. Um, you know, it, it, it's all a little bit of a jumble. If I had to go back and parse, what well, was this piece there or that piece there? But, but fundamentally, the the bulk of the the bulk of the original story took place in a very limited environment. You know, there was a car, there was a street, there was a hotel. It was not uh, extravagant. And so, once it went to the one producer or the the head of the studios, they said, "Can you lighten it up on a Disney scale? This is a four, and we need a seven. And so then you added these side characters and made Well, the characters, most of the characters were there. There was the hotel manager. There was Kit, the best friend. There was an elevator. You know, the, a, lot of the, a lot of the infrastructure, if you will, was there. But it did get expanded. There wasn't a big party scene, perhaps. There wasn't, you know, there were certain things that didn't exist uh, um, or that, that were dressed up, shall we say. Um, you know, I don't. I don't remember that we had quite so showy um, a sequence on Rodeo Drive, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, it 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 definitely evolved. Um, the beautiful thing was, uh, you know, my 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 job was clearly to discover and and launch and protect great young writers, and I knew that when we were having that conversation with Disney. Um, that it was really imperative. So the only the only condition I really had was uh, not about story. It was really about protecting Jonathan. And the condition that we put on it was he has to be guaranteed the first rewrite. Because I had such faith in him that he would break the back of this and turn it exactly into the proper, you know, the, like the best version of its comedic self. Um, knowing that and this isn't um, a negative, it's just to be expected. The studio would bring in other writers. Um, Jonathan had no, never been produced. He wasn't well known. And so uh, he committed the first rewrite. We delivered the first rewrite. And long before it was delivered, I was getting calls from agents saying, Gary, you know, they're reaching out to us for our clients for, you know, poten potentially hiring our clients for, to do a rewrite. And I said, I know it's okay. Thank you for letting me know. But it's absolutely, you know, to be expected. And they did. There were three other writers who came in. And um, uh, the first one, I, I won't mention the name because I was not a fan of the work at all. It was uh, unnecessarily, um, it was actually surprisingly dark. And I wasn't a fan of the writing. But they brought in another writer, Bob Garland, who was from the Electric Horseman, wonderful New York-based writer. And he polished up all the business dialogue. That was sort of his mission. And the final writer, Barbara Benedict, who was a beloved and you know very sought-after script doctorate, um, came in and did the final rewrite. And I would describe her work as bringing it back as close as possible to the rewrite. Jonathan had delivered to the studio, sort of brought it full circle. Um, yeah, we were very, we were very fortunate. This, the, you know, the integrity of the script was in full tact. Uh, there was a fair amount of, you know, Gary Marshall is, he had that 
gene, that magical gene of finding the heart of everything that uh, he, I mean, his, his legacy is so profound, both in, on the big and small screen, right? He just had that gift. And um, so our, our arrangement with him was, yes, we're shifting this from a drama to a comedy, but you know we're doing it quickly and we're moving. And so one, one take is scripted and then improv, and, which was consistent with his style. He gave, he's an amazing director to watch. You learn a lot watching Gary Marshall what, when I got to watch him work. Um, he gave enormous freedom to everyone on the set, not just the talent. He invited participation at every conceivable level. He gave actors the freedom to riff and um, uh, and and you know find the moment and you know lean into it, if you will. So it was it was an extraordinary. Sh uh, the, the set was a really really exciting place. It was a small small budget by studio standards. We were way way down that register. Um, and there was a lot of freedom because A, we had Gary Marshall, B, we were such a small budget, they weren't paying the kind of attention that they do to some of the bigger films. Um, but it was, a, it was a truly wonderful time. So that one connection at the Sundance Lab kind of led to, and how did you, how did, forgive me, I'm sorry, her name one more time. Michelle Satter. Michelle Satter, okay, sorry about that. Um, how did you know Michelle? I'm not sure how I originally met Michelle. It might have been through some of her staff or being at Sundance. I used to go every year to the, in the early years to the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, so I don't really, my memory doesn't stretch back that far. But uh, Michelle was someone that, as soon as I met her, I, I just recognized this is a wonderful person and really frightfully smart. And, um, and, and I've always been incredibly grateful because, you know, in fairness, Sundance did, I don't think they really got the proper public acknowledgement for the role that they played in the evolution or development and the possibility of that particular film. Interesting. But it was, but it was a key moment, certainly. It brought it, it brought it to the forefront of people's attention. What were some of the lowest moments you faced trying to get Pretty Woman made? Or 3,000 made, whatever evolution it was at. Oh gosh, it, it, every film has its um, peaks and valleys. Sometimes the valleys outnumber the peaks, um, or so it seems at the time. Um, if I look back and think, from the time I held a, a first draft script in my hand to the time we were actually shooting a film, it was only three years. And in the timeline of many films, that's not very long. It's actually quite wonderful. Um, but during that time, there were moments when it seemed, you know, when Vestron declared they were going into bankruptcy, uh, that was, uh, uh, you know, there was a lot of strain because if the script was, if we didn't get a turnaround on it, if we didn't actually paper and buy out the script, uh, get it back, uh, it would have been buried forever. Uh, that's what happens when you go into bankruptcy, right? It gets locked up. So there was a lot of, I was, I was really concerned about the project at that point. Um, that when we optioned it to New Regency, I wouldn't say there was a low point, there was a frustration, uh, not anyone's fault, but it's not always easy to put films together and get them on track toward production. So it got stalled. And so that would be more frustra frustrating over a sustained period of time than it was upsetting or a low, you know, a, a low point. Um, 
Richard, I was so convinced that Richard was right for this, that when he said no to the project, uh, which happened, as I recall, both at Vestron and then when we were, for some reason I had this crazy idea that when we were at New Regency, we should offer it again, new environment, uh, but same reaction. Um, and I understood it. Richard's a wonderful, you know, super educated, professional, great. I mean, he's fabulous. Um, but he is a sophisticate and he has a, a, a different taste. You know, being the guy in a romantic comedy wasn't necessarily the high point of his, you know, on his wish list. It was um, almost contrary to the things that he was most attracted to, edgy, darker, more sophisticated projects. Uh, so there was no surprise there. Um, the surprise was that he, we, we eventually succeeded in getting him. But I would say um, another low point might have been when we first were setting that, we, we set it up at Disney and I saw all of the people cycling through, perhaps the lowest point for me. I should have been the happiest because I had a major studio, I had a major director. I was like, oh my gosh, we have succeeded. And yet... Um, I had a really strong inkling about what this project wanted to become and the casting that was necessary to get there. And to me, the cast was Julia and Richard. Um, and I didn't have to be 100% right about that, but, but it's a, a sliding scale. There's a, a sort of palette of colors, if you will. And as I was watching all these other actresses and actors come through, some of them were just meetings because they were too big to audition. They were just big names. They were meetings, they were auditions, they were, some were screen tests. And as I watched some of these meetings and auditions and, and certainly the screen tests, I felt my, it was like my heart hurt. I had my heart set. I just, I trusted my gut. I've always trusted my gut on casting. And it's not that I'm right, it's just a gut. I knew what the film could be with Richard and Julia. And if I couldn't have one or the other or both, we'd do the very next best thing. But when I saw some of these screen tests and auditions and they were so the far side of, uh, dare I say, the vision that I had for it or that Jonathan and I had for it, um, there were moments when I felt I was seeing the premature death of my film, of the film. Um, and, and I couldn't help but feel anxious and sad and like, we, we've, we've got to find a solution here. Um, but again, the gods smiled, we got our dream cast and it all worked out. I think, I think part of the lesson there is you really have to know when and how to speak to an issue and speak up to the right people in, at the right time and really try and influence the outcome. And then when the film hit theaters, how surprised or not surprised were you with the uh, crowd's reception? Well, it's always a surprise. You know, people always say, did you know it was a hit? And the answer is no, of course not. We were actually, our reputation when we were shooting was, oh, that little film in trouble. Uh, we were, again, a very small budget by studio standards. We were turning it from a comedy, uh, from a drama to a comedy. We were, uh, it was known that Gary Marshall, God bless him, was going to be doing a lot of improv. So 
it wasn't like there was, oh my gosh, that film is going to be amazing. No, we were like almost more like an experiment than a film in many people's eyes. Um, we did a number, I forget the number, we did a few test screenings in outlying areas of LA and held focus groups afterward. Um, and with each successive screen test, it, it, the first one or two were like, okay, okay, that's good, but I'm nervous. Um, but as we got audience reaction and what was working and what they loved about it, and we kept throwing more humor into it, um, the, the, the reactions were, you know, you're standing in the back of the theater, a darkened theater, and you've got a full theater, and you're, you're, you're just on pins and needles waiting to see, are they going to laugh in the right places? Are they going to laugh in the wrong places? Are they going to understand what's going on? Are they, what's the word of mouth as they exit the theater? And you're watching their body language, literally, are they sitting up, you know? And the latter test, certainly by the last test screening, but I'd say the last couple of test screenings, the audience was, you couldn't have asked for a better reaction. At that point, I wouldn't say, oh my gosh, we have a hit. No, we were hopeful we were going to live. <laughs> the patients are going to live. Uh, when it came out and did the business that it did, which was back then in 1990, March of 1990, we came out and it did like 11 million and change the first weekend. That was a wow. The fact that it went up a little bit, like 12 million the second week, that told us, oh gosh, we have the best thing in the world going for us, word of mouth. People love it and they're talking about it. Um, and I don't remember precisely, but that film lived actively in theaters. I it's at least half a year. I think it was actually slightly longer, which of course would never happen today. Even back then it was an anomaly to have a, 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 an active theater presence for that duration. But um, I think even more surprising than that looking back is it's over 30 years later, 31 years later, and it's finding new generations of audience around the globe. It is a film that you, it's like a machine that just keeps churning out joy, right? And so to be associated with something like that is really uh, quite phenomenal. It's a blessing and who could have guessed at that? Were all of the reviews positive? Was there any criticism of the film, of the subject matter? I was, I don't recall that there was any negative. Um, there might have been, but I can't, I can't recall that. What I do remember was on the eve of releasing that film, the thing that had, I don't think I was alone in this. Um, there was a certain nervousness about putting a film out into the world where the role, you know, this lead character is a working girl and she's young. When I met Julia, she was 18. When we shot the film, she was 21 or so. Um, and she was a very youthful energy, right? So she was this, here's this young, beautiful girl who's a working girl. Um, and as much as we tried to paint the right version of that picture, carefully, um, I was really concerned because it was a time of, of great feminism. The Gloria Steinems of the world were, you know, on the front pages. And I thought we were going to get pilloried. I thought there was a good chance that there would be a lot of pushback 
that people would be upset with us. How dare you? Uh, and to my great surprise, that never, it never came to be. Those very people that I was most nervous about embraced it. Um, so I was actually, even more than the critics, I was concerned about some big public figures who were leading the feminist movement at the time. And we might have stepped on, you know, we might have hit the wrong chord here. Uh, but again, that, the thing that really un, was underlying this story, I mean, it's Pygmalion, it's Cinderella, it's a, it's eternal, right? It's a dreamscape and it's a beautiful love story. And so much so that it, that, that I guess it overrides whatever sort of socio-political instincts of the moment might be present. But yeah, no, the embrace was, I, 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 I might have selective memory, but the embrace seemed fairly complete. If it had been released now, let's suppose it had been made in 2020, 2019, pre-pandemic, do you think it would have received the same acclaim? Would there have been, would there have been people that had issue with certain things that? I think, I think not. Okay. Um, it's very hard to say what might have been. Uh, in some ways, I think the original story might have been better received in uh, the 2020s than, than the version we made. But I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think there's something, as I said, I think there's something predictably eternal about our love of story and the way we react to story and certain archetypes. Um, and certainly romance in general. So I, d I don't know, but I think, I think that we live in a time when people are certainly more critical. Um, and that film might not have fared the same. Is Hollywood a game, Gary? In a, in a sense, yes, I suppose. But, but I think life in a way is a game, like it's it, in, in the best sense. Um, but you sort of have to understand the rules of it. Um, people talk about breaking into Hollywood, which I always find fascinating. Um, because life is not an event, it's a process, right? And I think when people think about, you know, people, people are very given to stories and their craft and their dream of what it is they want to accomplish. Um, we know it's show business, but very few people really think about the business side of the equation. And I find a lot of creatives in particular are not intentionally random, but they are. They end up being random in their approach, focusing on craft, not thinking about how they're going to navigate. Um, as if our industry is somehow different from all other industries, uh, which it's not. I mean, it, it, it is in a sense, but it's not in the sense of being relationship-based. Um, and I, I, you know, what, what I would encourage people is, I, I try and train people to be hyper-focused, hyper-intentional, uh, radically transparent, and not think about needing a representative so much as being themselves a presence, developing rapport, creating relationships in this business. And understanding that the first thing they have to know is who are you? 
who are you in the world? What do you care about? What What's your creative DNA? What's your signature? What What are the kinds of stories you want to be participating in or writing or directing or producing, whatever it might be? Um, and then thinking about if that's true, who is it that I really need to know? If hypothetically, if I could have 100 people over time be my champions and mentors, who would they be? And that's going to be different from me to the person sitting next to me. And then making that reality come to come to be, right? I think a lot of a lot of people are taught unfortunate habits. So they learn, they mimic habit, habits of, of their peers, which may or may not be optimal. Writers may, for example, send up line query letters that are deeply impersonal and fly into strangers' inboxes asking them to either produce it or represent them or whatever it might be. A big ask. Um, as opposed to humanizing the process. Over and again, time and time again, I get the sense that people people have a story that Hollywood is not welcoming. That it's um, that they have they don't understand their value and they don't know that the welcome mat is out, um, which couldn't be further from the truth. If you approach people the way you would in any other environment, so what I wish for people is that they get more comfortable being vulnerable and telling people what's unique about them. Why, who are they? What's, what's, what's some, any one really delicious, unexpected uh, nugget from their life experience that makes them memorable? Tell people, share with people, wh what was, why was this particular, of all the possible stories in the universe, why this one? What's the connective tissue? Why was that so important to you that you put all your soul equity into creating this? And a third leg of the soul, very important, is don't just send it out randomly. If I want to send you this project, why you? Why have I chosen you? Not because your name was in a directory. I researched you. Uh, there was some one film that you made perhaps that was um, like I got sucker punched in the third eye, it's so spot on. Or maybe it's your entire body of work. There's something that called me to think you might be a right-sized fit, a good match for me and for this particular story. Say those things. Pick up the phone. Don't rely on social media. Don't rely on blind query letters. Make it personal. This is a personal business. Reach out to someone and do not be a snob. You're not going to probably reach the name on the door, nor do you necessarily need to. I've always learned, I built my entire career based on one simple realization early on. All I need to do is befriend the assistant. The assistant or of any, you know, when assistants move on, they go to the next little notch up, which is still entry level. It's a creative executive. It's a director of production. It's a, you know, a, head of development, whatever their titles. All of those people, beginning with the person who answers the phone, which is usually an assistant, these are your target. These are the people who have enormous value, who are so aligned with you, you have so much in common with them. They are highly vetted. They are usually like they beat out 50 people or more to get that particular perch. 
they're ambitious. They're sitting on the inside learning the business and on, a, on a producer's desk or an agent's desk or whatever it might be, casting studio. Um, and they are going to last in that position for 18, 24, some number of months. And they will matriculate because they're really good. And they've had to work really hard and, and you know, they, that's their sharpening stone. These people need relationships with you as much as you need one with them. And most people don't understand that. It's like the currency of most of us is who's, what relationships do I enjoy with talent? In front of the camera, behind the camera, it doesn't matter. Do I know other good producers, writers, cinematographers, actors, whatever it might be, casting directors? Um, we're all in the business of relationship. And so it's a beautiful game of human billiards. And everyone is, instead of being narrow focused and saying, I'm just going to, I'm not gonna share who I am as an artist, as a creator, as a writer. I'm gonna put out a blind query letter with a log line, et cetera, and I'll send it to a stranger who does not yet know me. And I'm gonna hope and pray to get a good response. And the common refrain is not a positive response. I send out hundreds, I get two responses, they're usually passes. Very typical. As opposed to saying, I'm gonna to dare to be uncomfortable and awkward for a moment. I'm gonna take a minor risk. It's not threatening my life, but I'm gonna take a minor risk of being uncomfortable. And I'm gonna call someone who does not know me. And I'm gonna introduce myself. And I'm not gonna ask a big favor. The first couple of calls, I'm only gonna ask advice. It's gonna, that's what I learned early on is like, make everyone your mentor. Ask advice, keep the call to three, four minutes. Do it again a week later. Do it again a week later. Make a friend. And they're as desirous of that as you are. You just have to catch them when they're not overwhelmed. Um, so I think, I think you know, it, it, it's a funny word. Is Hollywood a game? And I think, yeah, if you want to win at this, if you really want to have a viable, sustainable career as a creative, what's interesting is the artist. You all, you know, everyone has more than one story, one hopes. Um, and the story may be brilliant, but what makes it really interesting is the point of view of the creator and why they did it and what's their life experience. We, we, we react to one another. We are attracted to that. And even if someone falls in love with one of your scripts, they're never going to go forward with it unless and until they meet you, the creator. So I think, I think in a sense, you know, it's, it's really having that sort of divine inspiration that just comes down and gives you the permission. Like, oh my gosh, I don't need permission. I can just reach out and talk to whoever I want. No one is unreachable. That was my earliest lesson. No one is unreachable. If you're humble, if you're vulnerable, if, you're, if, if you make it pleasant, you're, you know, and you can say to someone, oh my gosh, I'm terrified. I'm so nervous to be calling you even to an assistant, because it's true, as long as it's true. Um, but the more you let yourself be known, and the more other focused you become, the more generous you are, the more you share and ask questions that are like, of human, you know, truly interesting to humans. 
it's it works magic. If you win over an assistant, and I know I'm rambling on, but if you win over an assistant, you win over everybody in that office because they have the full trust of everyone in that office. They've been hired, relied on. They're a critical part of, of, the, of, of that mission. Um, if you want to win over an, you know, a group of people, get to know their assistant. So it is a game in some sense. And to get in the game, you find that one assistant, person that's there before everyone else, maybe making coffee, getting it ready, answering the phones. How do you do it in a way that's genuine? Well, the question is the answer by being genuine and saying, you know, I, when I was new, I would just turn to people and say, I'm new. I'm the turnip that just fall off the truck, but I'm really committed to making it in this business, but I know how much I don't know. I have a couple of questions. If you could spend three minutes answering my questions, it would mean the world to me. People can't resist the truth if it's real, if it's genuine. Um, when I would call assistance, of course, you don't know who they are. It's just a person answering the phone. And I would just introduce myself and say, look, this is, and it's what I was talking about earlier. I'm an aspiring screenwriter or fill in the blank. I am absolutely mesmerized by the work your company consistently puts out into the world. That's why I'm reaching out. And yes, I have a project that's very much, that shares a lot of kinship with the kinds of projects, stories that you tell, but I'm not sending it to you. I'm not asking you to read my script. I just want to establish a relationship with you. And I get their name so that I can, when I'm off the call, research them and find out all sorts of delicious stuff about them online. Um, and I will have a question or two, and it's usually something I know they can answer. It's, it might be, you know, how do you operate as a company? Are, are you, you know, I'm not gonna send you my script, but are, do you accept outside material? It could be, uh, were you there at the time they made this last film that came out in March that was just so phenomenal? Um, how did you get to be there? How did, how did you get to work for this extraordinary company? And where do you wanna go? I mean, I know you don't want, you know, you're, you're paying dues, you're sitting in the crosshairs of this amazing opportunity, but where do you see yourself in a few years? Um, you know, where'd you go to school? Did you go to film school? I'll ask any question that comes up in the moment for me. Um, but there'll, but there'll be questions to which I really do want the answer. It'll be, in, it'll help inform me about this person. And I always build in and say, look, you know, I've used up my four minutes. You've been amazingly kind to take my call. I just want you to know I really appreciate it. And I have another question or two. I'm thinking about a couple of things, but I'd like, you know what? You're busy. I'm, you know, I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to call you a week from today. If you have three or five minutes available, that would be absolutely extraordinary. But thank you. I researched the heck out of them. I called them back the next week, exactly when I said I would. And if they're available, great. And if they're not, I call back again. 
my idea is that people are very welcoming. If that's your expectation, that's probably going to be the reality. If you welcome that, it can be a very welcoming experience. I don't mind people sending me query letters, but I'll tell you, there's a universe galaxy of difference between if someone sends me a query letter and I've never spoken, I have no idea who they are. And they're sending me a storyline with the goal of me reading it and possibly producing it or whatever their intention is. Um, versus someone who's reached out to either me or someone on my team, making themselves known as a human, developing some rapport, taking the time, investing a multiple of calls over the course of a month, let's say, and now they're really familiar with someone on my team. And that person, and this happens all the time, whether it was as a manager or as a producer, someone would come to me and say, you know, I've, I've met so-and-so and, -so and um, they're really nice. I think they're really s smart. And I've just read some of their work because you do that after three or four calls. Now the, 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 the walk mat is out. Would you take a look at it? My answer is always yes. That's, that's my team member, you know, and, and, and that's kind of the reality. Now it might not be direct to me. It might be to my head of development or it might be some, but that's how you penetrate. That's how you get welcomed in. A query letter after you've spoken with a human that's addressed to the human you spoke to is a totally different experience than just a strange, unexpected email coming into my inbox or someone else, you know, why, why is it coming into my inbox? And I, that's not to be, that's not hubris. It's just prag, pragmatism. There are so many ways to play the long game, build rapport, with the faith that the long game is actually the faster track. We often hear it's impossible to get a screenplay read, and especially now, so many new writers want to get into Netflix, want to get a meeting with someone. Is it impossible? No, it's not impossible. Um, but I think you have to calibrate. You have to be realistic. Um, I mean, people talk about Netflix a lot, certainly. It's the big lion in the jungle. Uh, and uh, we see a lot of good projects being produced or acquired. So that's great. Uh, Netflix is actually one of the companies uh, being as big as they are. It's understandable. They're a company who basically advertises. They have a policy that we, if we don't have an existing relationship with you, don't knock on our door. Uh, so it would seem logical that people would have this feeling like, oh, I can't get read. But there's, but it's, but it's really not what it seems. What they're really saying is, invest a little time, make yourself known to us. How do you do that? Um, when the case of the first of all, there's 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 a couple of dozen very vibrant streamers, not just Netflix. They're not the world of streaming. They're one of the biggest of. And there's a lot of places that you can go who don't have, uh, you know, the policy of we don't accept unsolicited material or you can't come pitch us, whatever it might be. But if you really want to get in the door, it reminds me of, you know, back in the day when Carlos Santana wanted to play at Fillmore West up in San Francisco and Bill Graham, the empresario, was like, I don't know who this kid is. And he, you know, people, you knock and you knock and you knock. It's like Jeffrey Katzenberg from 
always used to say, if, if, you, if you can't get in the front door, go through the back door. If you get in the back door, climb through a window. If you can't, go in through the basement. There's a way in. And that's true. Well, Carlos Santana climbed up a drain pipe on the exterior of the building to the third floor and fell through the window into Bill Graham's office. That's how they met. Well, I don't recommend that necessarily, but it worked. It started his career. By the same token, if you want to get into Netflix, how hard is it to research who are all the people who've either produced for them an original or had a film acquired by them and cozy up to them? This is a team sport. This is, it takes a village to get any project made, series, feature, limited series, docu-series, whatever. So you're going to want to be knowing these people regardless. Well, why don't you just find the ones who are doing the kinds of projects, genre, budget, that are similar to yours, who happen to have that relationship and go that route. Um, there's a lot of ways in, um, but there's the other, and, and the other way is there are a lot of people who work at Netflix. Befriend them. It's not all, this is not a, like a pass-fail report card or menu of options. It's a human reality. If you really are determined to get into Netflix, there are people at all levels, from, from assistant all the way up, uh, where you can identify them and you can find them on LinkedIn. They're, they're named. And you can reach out to them and you can do what we were just talking about a moment ago, which is introduce yourself, but not to say, I want a pitch meeting or I want you to read my script. I just want to get to know you. Because what happens is if you actually invest a couple of short calls doing that over a period of weeks, that prohibition against we don't deal with strangers or we don't read unsolicited material vanishes, it evaporates because now you're not unknown. That's a human metric and you can overcome that. Um, now I'll share a quick story about many, many years ago. Um, I always, when I have a project I always put together what I call a top 100 list. Who are the people that ideally, in every category, that I, wanted, that I would want to approach to talk about this project? From editors and writers and cinematographers and casting directors to producers to buyers, studios, streamers, you name it. And I will just go through that list and prioritize them and I'll reach out to them. And usually, again, it may not be the name on the door or maybe it is. Um, but the idea um, the story that I want to share is that years ago I, I, I made a list and um, it wasn't arrogance. It was just, I'm, it was a dream. So I added a name to my list that was the most preeminent name in Hollywood at the time and probably still is, Steven Spielberg. So here I am, a little guppy, and I put the name of Steven Spielberg on my list. And I think, you know, you know normally you would think, oh, sober up child, it's not going to happen. But as it turns out, I had gotten to know uh, this wonderful guy, young guy named Mitch, who was an entry level guy. I met him when he was an assistant. He got promoted to creative executive and he was now a creative executive at Amblin. His ultimate boss was Steven. And um, so I spent some months just nurturing that relationship. And one day, uh, someone sent me a script and it was absolutely gorgeous. It was beautifully crafted, a story, young characters, kind of a very special care, very emotional, 
young, uh, uh, young leads. Uh, but it was just tremendously well done. So I called up this fellow whose name was Mitch. And I said, Mitch, I read this script. We'd been co-conspirators. We're both starting out in the business. We were friends now, new friendship, and we were excited. So he read it and he called me back. He read it on the weekend, the usual Monday morning call back. And he, he called me back and he said, uh, he praised it. He said, this is absolutely gorgeous. It was very emotional. It took me back to when I was that age. I had a not dissimilar experience. Fa fabulous. Thank you. It was really, really interesting. It's going to be a pass. And I said, okay, Mitch, um, I, one favor. Why? Why is this a pass? You just, you were just singing its praises. And he said, because it's too small for Stephen. I said, okay, that's fair. I understand that. But let me ask you a question. If you put this script in Stephen's briefcase for his weekend read and he were to come back Monday and say to you, this is a pass, would you have any, and specifically whether it's because it's too small or otherwise, would you have any cause for embarrassment? Would it in any way jeopardize your standing in the company? He said, no, it's a brilliant script. I said, great. Then I am on... We're on a phone, you can't see me, but I'm on one knee and I am begging you, put it in Stephen's briefcase. And he did. Stephen read it and he wanted to buy it. Now, the, no one was more stunned than I was. But I think this is a business that turns on belief. It's a business that turns on passion. It's a business that you just got to go with your instincts and get your head out of the game sometimes because this is the fear factor, right? This is the don't take risk factor. Speak the truth and make friends with people. If I can get Steven Spielberg to want to buy a script, I mean, he didn't know. Gary Goldstein's the name. I might as well have been the clerk at the local convenience store. Right? If an agent, by the way, had sent that very same script on my behalf, it would have been absolutely a pass. It would never have gotten to Stephen. Because it wasn't about report, it wasn't about an exploration. It was like, okay, it's a pass. I get it. Um, magic happens when you make yourself available, when you make yourself known, when you care enough to ask the right questions, speak your truth. The fact that I, as a young guppy in the business, could get the attention of Steven Spielberg and maybe actually have a project together was unthinkable. People would have said, you're nuts. Um, so do I think that it's hard to get your script read? I think it's hard to get your script read when you don't take risk. If you're relying on the wrong mindset, the wrong strategy, a blind query letter, or relying on some third party. We all of us need, we deserve to get in the game. We deserve to have relationships, to have cohorts and collaborators and champions and fans and allies and um, help one another mutually. At what point is too much though? I think many people in the entertainment industry, they're long on enthusiasm, but sometimes, certain times it can be too much. Maybe they gotta sort of reel it back in because you don't wanna hurt your reputation where, oh, it's that person again. 
that happens often. Um, and and it, it may be um, a, a very well-intended enthusiasm. Sure. But the enthusiasm I think you're referring to is a very self-facing enthusiasm. Okay. So it's 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 maybe not intended to be overly grand or braggadocio or any of that, but it may come across that way. Uh, or just too self-focused, period. Right. So what I would share with people is, is that idea that vulnerability and honesty and truth is not a push energy. It's a pull energy. It's a very attractive energy. But don't spend the whole time talking about yourself. In fact, uh, one of the great life lessons in not just Hollywood, but in life is fewer words, listen more. The less you say, the fewer words you use to communicate, the more the other person remembers. If you talk too much, it just becomes a, a blur. Um, but be other focused, care about the other person, be curious. I think that curiosity and gratitude and all, you know, they're bywords today, but they're real. Those are real energies. And if I approach you and I'm grateful for, you know, thank you so much for taking this call, not over being overly solicitous, but just honest. Um, and asking about, you know, how, you know, how long have you been there and how did you get that job? It's awesome. And where, where do you aspire to go? I would probably be the only person, not only that day, but that week, month, and possibly longer, who's actually shown a genuine curiosity or interest in you because everyone else is in a rush to get past you to the boss. Um, it's easy to make friends in this business, actually. Um, but you're right. You can't assault people with enthusiasm and expect it to be an effective strategy. It has to be very moderated. Less is more. Quiet is better than loud. Truth is better than grandiosity. Um, so it's just being measured uh, because it's, 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 it's hard, you know, the g-force of people's enthusiasm can be um, unwelcome. If you were starting from zero today, how long do you think it would take you to get into a place like Netflix to pitch ideas? It's a great question. I, I think it takes, I think it takes a while, it, it's going to take a while regardless. You have to be committed and you have to be willing to invest some time. Um, in the olden days, we networked in a different way. We showed up in person for coffee, breakfast, lunch, dinner, office meetings, nonstop. The advantage of, I mean, the, the downside to that was it was extraordinarily time consuming. The upside of that was it was very personal. The advantage of today is we can reach anyone we want. I can Google anybody, find out how to get in touch with them, where they are, where they work. If I don't know someone at that agency or that streamer, I can find out who works there. Um, I can reach out to them very quickly, digitally. I can speak to them on a phone. I can get them on a Zoom. I can do whatever, you know, those are those options are very available to us. So we can truncate the time, but we need more frequency of interaction because of the lack of personal connection. If we're not sitting across a lunch table from them, it's different. Uh, but again, I, I really think that's incumbent on us to be so conscious and present and, and aware of what our 
mission is and how we want to get there. I think the problem today is we are separated by um, technology or we're connected by technology, but we're not physically in the room with them more often than not. People say, do I need to be in LA? No, you don't need to be in LA. If you're in LA, you'd be having the same number of meetings that you're having right now initially for the foreseeable. So technology is our friend, but it's not as personal. The hardest part back then was finding someone and getting together physically with them so you could have a relationship with them. Today, you can find, identify someone quickly in an instant online and you can reach out to them instantly by email, by phone, what have you. Uh, but you have to invest in that and make it personal. You have to come across in a different way. If you're, if the if the intention is I just want a pitch meeting, that's going to be hard, especially at a place like Netflix. Until you build your those bridges, those rapport based bridges that let you walk into that opportunity. So I think it's really less about how is it the same or how is it different than are we are we ready, willing, and able to invest ourselves in bridge building, human bridge building, or are we just looking for someone to set us up for a meeting? One is realistic, one is not. Years ago, an actor friend of mine, uh, I ran into him and he was, he wasn't in a good mood. He was, he was upset with himself and I said, what's going on? And he told me he'd just been to an audition and he didn't get the gig. And I said, what was it? Tell me about the role, tell me the project, who was in the room, blah, blah, blah. So he, he fills in all the details. And it turns out it was the casting director, the casting associate, the, the, the a producer. I think the director was, I'm not 100% sure, but there was at least one producer there. Anyway, it was a project he really wanted. These were really good people. But he didn't get it and he left and that was it. He was in a total funk. And I said, that's interesting. So why are you so hard on yourself? And he was like, what are you talking about? I didn't get the gig. I said, well, look, I, I, we may, I'm not an actor, so what do I know? But I have this crazy idea that the, the purpose of an audition is primarily to get invited back, that to get the gig is secondary. Like, look who you just told me was in the room. These are like people, people dream about meeting these people and you just spent time with them. And so I, again, it may be naive, but I think if you walk in and you're smiling and you greet the assistant and you greet everyone in the room, and of course you're gonna give your very finest performance, but you let them know you as a personality and you make it fun and you thank them and you greet them on the way out. There's a million reasons why you not be, might not be correct for that role, but they'll remember you. And the job is to just get invited back because if you're on the spectrum, if no is over here and yes is over here, these twins that were never separated at birth, right? They're essential to each other. If you're on the spectrum and, and, and you're invited back, you're inching toward your goal. Eventually, they're gonna hire you. It's a given. That's my belief, that's my experience. So, If, if, you know, like people always ask, how do you handle rejection? I celebrate it. It's like, I'm in the game. I'm doing something right. And it's, 
it's an opportunity. No, it's, you know, I, I did a TED talk about it. It's, no, it's just a conversation starter. It's, I really believe that. It's like when someone says, like in the Mitch story, if someone says no to me, this is going to be a pass. It's like fabulous. I totally upend their expectation instead of like, ah, and making them uncomfortable. My attitude is great. That's fantastic. The only thing that would be better is if you tell me why. Like, I want to learn. And what's happening is, yes, you're learning, but what you've also done is you've bonded more deeply. Like, that's a human experience that is not common. You're gracious, you're curious, you're thankful, and you're open. That's the person people want to work with. When you were actively reading screenplays, how hard was it for you to find a great screenplay? <laughs> um, it, it, it's always a challenge. It's funny, I, I just had um, I just had lunch on the weekend with an executive producer of a very popular TV series, and he reminds me that we met back in like, he was quoting me from 1989, like, who remembers that far back? Um, and the thing he, one of the, one of the things he remembered was me saying, you know, I feel lucky if one out of a hundred gets me really excited. And I think that's, you know, I don't know if that's mathematically true, but it seems like that's the case. Um, and it's not because, it's not always because the quality is not there or, you know, or it's not always about the caliber of the writing. It's oftentimes because, for example, me as a consumer and as a producer, um, I'm probably not the right guy to write, you know, or to produce a, um, a big sci-fi movie or certain other kinds of fare. There are certain kinds of interactions or stories that really appeal to me and many that don't. But I'm always writing to see how talented someone is, like how, what, what kind of storyteller are they? Um, but yeah, I would say personally, I'm, I'm not, uh, I've never been a volume producer. I've always been pretty fussy. But I would say if I find one out of 100 that's worth having a conversation to see if there's a there there, if we get along, if we agree about the vision for the project, if it's something we want to roll up our sleeves on together, it's probably about 1%. And that was going to be my next question. Do you think that um, we often hear that 99% of screenplays written are horrible? What's your experience? Oh, gosh. Uh, that's really hard to say. 99% of screenplays written, and that's a big pool. Um, usually by the time I, you know, there's, there's, there's sort of a natural evolution. Uh, so... I'm really not taking scripts off the internet or I'm not posting on public forums saying, send me your scripts. So I don't know what the big, the bigger ocean of opportunity looks like. I usually get scripts sent to me through people who are either writers that I know, their representatives, their attorney, their friend, someone in the business, a producer, another producer might want to share something with me. Um, um, horrible is a horrible word. <laughs> <laughs> um, certainly there are those that I read where I go, gosh, this is way off the mark. There's, I can't, you know, it's, it's, I really want to root just like for a movie, same for a screenplay. I, I am that guy who I'm rooting for the writer. I'm rooting for the story. I want to love this. If I read something that's so poorly written that I just can't get through the whole of it, 
that's as disappointing as it is, you know, like, okay, so it's not for me, that's fine. But it's disappointing. I want that to be better. I want that person to be better, to be a better at their craft. What do you think 99% of screenplays get wrong? Wow, great question. I don't know if there's a, a sort of that ubiquitous one thing that they all get wrong. I just think that one, one of the things writers, I would like to see more writers have sort of a more systematic reality check system, inner circle system, so that at a given point in time, if they feel it's ready for prime time, they really have a trusted group of, not friends and family, but seasoned people, people in the business who know their stuff and how to read a script and get the feedback. Um, I always do that to this day. I still, I know that we get so close, our, our, our face is pressed up against the glass. We've been working on something for seven or 12 or whatever number of rewrites and we lose perspective. And if I were to give it to you and four other people and you all come back with one similar comment, I know that I have a real issue that I've overlooked. If all five of you come back with criticisms, but they're all different, that's a win. It's like, okay, now I can pick and choose which ones make sense, which ones do in my gut I really feel enhance the story. I th so I think one of the things is not, not falling too in love or feeling too precious about the material that you create, but really being open and willing to find the you know, and, and bold enough and brave enough to find the very best version of the story. And that requires, I, I hear a lot of writers talk about, well, um, I, I really don't want to change it that much. You know, it's no, this is, you know, that's be a painter, be a sculptor, write a novel. Uh, this is a medium that's designed for collaboration. And I think, you need to take that as an asset, as a positive, and invite it um, because it's going to happen eventually. How many pages into a screenplay before you know it's a bad screenplay? Not long. Um, there are many, and, and I sort of agree. Uh, if someone doesn't grab me somehow in the first three pages, with the quality of their craft or something that's surprising in a good way. Um, that's, that's what I'm hoping for. Someone really putting a hook in my mouth. But 10 pages in, easily 15 pages in, you, you sort of see the caliber of the writing, the, the, the quality of the craft. Um, it's, it's, it's not likely that the, the actual quality of the writing is going to shift on page 30 or 60. When you sat down to read 3000, later to be called Pretty Woman, where were you? I was in, um, I owned a home in West Hollywood. It was this absolutely charming 1920s bungalow style, classic Hollywood bungalow, right? All sunlight, beautiful yard, the whole thing. And I had a room that was just like my reading room. It was a small like sunroom. Uh, and yeah, that's where I did most of my reading at night and on the weekend. And yeah, I, I like to read at home as opposed to, say, at the office. So it was a Friday night and you... you I don't remember still, what day okay. of the week it might have been. Mm -hmm. All I can tell you is I was waiting with great anticipation. Uh, I had very high hopes because I was so um, admiring of Jonathan and, and what, I'd, what I knew of him as a person, but certainly what I'd seen on the page. And the only question was, could he really sort of jump it up to that level of maturity? 
and um, I promise you, the moment he delivered it to me, I probably at that moment, wherever I was, turned off the phone. If we had phones that turned off, whatever, you know, metaphorically, and it was like, okay, this is the most important thing I have to do this week. I'm going to go home and read this. And so three pages in, you're loving it. Five pages in, were you waiting for the other shoe to drop where you had notes and you thought this isn't, or you? No, the thing about, no, I, I don't go into it with that sort of lens. I'm not looking for what's wrong. Um, it's just not my way. When someone grabs me from the beginning, which he did, when... Um, it's not heavy-handed, it's just right. When that happens and I'm engrossed and I'm invited into this and I'm he's got me, right? Until he stops getting me, I'm not operating from here, right? And that was from cover to cover, that was my experience. I never really intellectually assessed the script. That's why I was so excited about it because if I didn't, I figure a lot of other people won't, that they'll have an experience somewhat similar to mine, where they're so engrossed in the characters and the, the way it plays out in the dialogue and, and, and all those other supporting roles and, and the friendships and the tensions and whatnot, that um, they're going to swim through the script the same way I did. And that's what I pray for. It's like, that's, that's the win. Any tips you can give screenwriters that would immediately improve their screenplays, especially in those first few pages? I don't think there's any sage guidance that I have other than to recognize what you just said, which is the opening of your script is so important. You really want to set the table right up front. Invite, let, let people know what you're, you're inviting them into. Um, I've seen scripts that start out with like a page and a half or two pages of single-spaced narrative description. Um, not a good way to start a screenplay, um, to make us do that much work to get to our characters or the action. So um, I would say, you know, really take absolute advantage. And, um, you know, we're in the entertainment business. Entertain me starting from the first moment. But other than that, I don't think, I mean, every story is so uniquely different, not just because of the conventions of the various genres, but just the storytellers are different. And the, um, I can't, I can't think of, it's really, yeah, never mind. I'm rambling. It's, it's just the recognition that you, that you bring up in your, by way of your question. What's the DNA of a writer? People are so fascinating. I, I, I don't know that I've ever met someone who is not possessed of the most surprising story and life experience. And the only people who don't know it is the person living that story. They take them, you know, people take themselves for granted. They tell a lesser version. They have these sort of, they, 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 they don't see themselves the way I see them or the way you might see them. Um, I think the DNA of a writer is so deeply anchored both in this life experience ancestrally in every sense. Um, there's a wonderful quote 
by Ben Kingsley. And I can't remember it precisely, but it's something like our work evolves and over time it becomes less careful, less anal, less conscious and more a reflection of the truth of our soul. And I think that's really the journey of an artist. It's there, but it needs to be freed. It's like carving the David or letting a wine mature. And it's like, as we grow into what we do and we relax into it and we have the confidence that we don't have to, we're not thinking from the neck up so much. We're finding the truth zone, right? Um, I think we spend much of our life mastering something, becoming really good at the craft, whatever that is, whether it's a creative pursuit or not. But then in time, you just cross this sort of invisible threshold where it just, you start taking deeper cuts. You trust yourself. That's when it gets really interesting. What's the difference between writing as a hobby and writing as a career? The difference between a hobby and a career as a writer, it's a choice. Um, and sometimes that choice is conscious and sometimes it's not. There may be someone who, you know, who, who, who is a hobbyist, who's as serious and, and devoted and, and possessed by the act of writing as anyone else. They may lack the commitment to do what it takes to make a career out of it. And there are a lot of people who think it's a career, but they haven't, you know, like what's the measure of a career? Well, the measure of a career would be superficially, are you earning a living doing it? But it would also be, are you really getting the appreciation acknowledgement? Are you forging the relationships with the people who really constitute that community in a meaningful way? Or are you an outlier? And not an outlier, but are you, are you an outsider who's really not knocking on those doors? Um, I think there are so many brilliant stories that get lost to us that are important because people don't knock on the door because they're, they're more content in the safety of it being a hobby. They may not refer to it as the word hobby, but not really. And I, I think there are a lot of artists who need champions. They need people, they need a Sherpa, they need a guide. You know, one of my early heroes was Max Perkins and Max was a man of letters. He was a brilliant writer himself, but he was also most of his adulthood, a, and the, the single best editor in my view of the, in, uh, the 20th century in America. And he was the father figure who discovered um, and nurtured and launched careers uh, for Faulkner and Hemingway and Ring Lardner and Thomas Wolfe and just the list goes on. Um, and a lot of these creatives either would have, there are a lot of instances, I won't get into the particular stories, but they're, they're, Faulkner might easily have never come to Hollywood. He might never have had certain of his books published had it not been for Max. And the same probably is true in varying degrees with certain of his other illustrious clients. Um, so I think it's sort of a, you know, it's, it's hard to adjudicate at what point people have the constitution to really take it into their own hands and say consciously, I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to find my way in. 
or I'm just going to be a soloist and enjoy the act of writing. And there's a lot of gray in between those two. Um, I think the first thing is just to recognize the phenomenal joy, if that's your, if that's true for you, right? Like for me, I'm a natural writer. I'm not an author and I'm not a screenwriter. I'm a writer. They're different. Um, I take enormous joy in writing. It's one of my happiest moments of the day. Um, but I don't see that I'm a professional writer. I think my, my, my marketplace skills are better. Uh, I'm, I'm better as a producer. I'm better as a fire starter and a facilitator and an organ orchestrator. Um, than being, and I'm a very good editor, but I'm, uh, I don't think I'm a screenwriter. So it's kind of knowing yourself and how far you want to push it. And do you have the gumption to do so? If we were going to break down the day of two screenwriters, so one who is, quote, waiting to be discovered versus one who, as you say, leverages their entertainment career, what would those two days look like? Oh, gosh, very different. Um, now, they may have equal levels of discipline or lack of discipline when it comes to how and when and where they write. I mean, some writers, it's like they're early morning writers or they're nighttime writers or whatever is their sort of biorhythm creatively, right? Uh, and do they do that consistently? And do they block out a certain number of hours? And do they hang the same gone fishing sign on the door so the family knows, leave me alone, right? Um, so those are all one, sort of one category of, of um, discipline and decision that a creative makes. One is self-responsible, makes a decision to be self-responsible. Like it would be great to have an agent, but it's not essential. I'm still gonna make it. So I'm gonna be intentional and I'm gonna allocate a certain amount of my brain and my, my heart and my consciousness and my time to having a plan. I'm gonna build my own plan. I'm gonna say I'm gonna dedicate anywhere from 30 minutes a day to an hour a day to two hours a day on my career versus the hours that I spend writing, which is about my craft. I'm going to have a vision, a plan, long-term, short-term, in the next month or, you know, every month I want to make these kinds of measurable steps forward. I want this to happen in six months, this to happen in 12 months. And you may or may not hit those marks, but the intention, the entrepreneurial sort of energy of, yeah, there's this other rail, this other track that I'm going to pay attention to and, and, and respect as much as I respect the greater amount of time that I spend with the actual writing. Um, and it's gotta be consistent. It's like an athlete when you're training, you know? It's, you've gotta be, um, you've, got, you've gotta be a bit rigorous and say, you know, what do I, what do I need if I'm gonna succeed? You know, if, if my manuscript or my screenplay is not gonna chew off its own head in the drawer while it gathers dust, what do I need? I need a team. I need to know people. I need people to uh, collaborate with. And I need people to, you know, who are, before I need them, I want to have the relationship with the people that eventually I'm going to need when I have a new project ready. Who are those people? Uh, and then make it a point to build out your, I mean, there's nothing more important than just, I, I, I don't really love the word networking, but that's what it is. It's saying, I need, I need my village, I need my tribe, I need my team, 
whatever that looks like. And I'm not talking just about a representative. I mean a real community of people that are my, my creative collab. So Twitter, going on Twitter, being a part of writer organizations, mm -hmm. whether they're on social media or separate from social media, absolutely. Uh, where do I get immerse myself in that conversation so that I can get feedback, so that I can find resources, I can share resources and opportunities. And if I want to introduce someone to someone else, it'll be a generosity that's well received and reciprocated. Yeah, put yourself in that flow when you're not in your writing space. I think it's, and, 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 not, just, and not just with other writers. Um, I think it's important that you color outside the lines and that you be a little bit imaginative and daring, not just with your writing, but in your choice of, uh, you know, we've talked about this before. Most writers uh, uh, think in terms of agents or producers, either representation or who's going to get my help, get my project produced. And that's all wonderful. But there are all these other people out there that people aren't knocking on their door and they're available and they'd love to talk to you and share their wisdom. So why aren't we reaching out to the line producer, the casting director, the cinematographer, et cetera, et cetera. There are editors and other writers that you can glean inordinate wisdom from and have real fun with. Uh, so I think that, you know, it doesn't always have to be specific, you know, like a specific result or goal that you want to achieve. It's just saying, my greatest currency is really being a part of this community that is the film and, and, and TV enterprise, right? I, I need to walk the streets of my community and know my neighbors and be able to talk to them and be welcoming of them. And what if you're shy and maybe they're not welcoming of you? I don't believe for a moment that they're not welcoming. I do believe that a lot of people are shy. And, but that's, you know, being shy is not an excuse not to succeed. It's just not. Um, it's hard, but I've had, I can't tell you the number of people uh, that I've coached over time who come back and go, oh my God, I had no idea. This is like, you know, the Red Sea parting. I didn't know it was so easy and so much fun to meet people. I thought it was scary. I thought there was a monster in the closet. I thought these were fire-breathing, weapon-wielding, terrible, terrible people who didn't want to know me. And, and, and it's like, oh my God, I just forced myself. And it was very uncomfortable. It was extremely awkward. I didn't like it. But I forced myself to do uh, for one week what you suggested. And I'd make two calls a day for a week. And by that Friday, it was like, oh my gosh. There was one person who was too busy. There was one person who had some attitude. But eight people welcomed me. And I'm going to be speaking with most all of them again in another week, just the way you taught. And it's, it's, it's I, I'm not taking credit for it. It's just like, it's, it was just like a push. Go jump in the water. You're not going to drown. Flop your arms. You're going to swim. May not look beautiful the first time, but it, it doesn't take long before it's like, oh, you let your shoulders down and say, you know what, I can let go, I can lay down the stories that don't serve me. 
And a lot of people have that story that, oh, I'm, is, is, there are two sides of the coin. I'm too shy. I'm introverted. I'm not comfortable. It's scary. I don't want to do it. And the other side is they don't want me to do it. They're not friendly. They're not welcoming. Uh, I have, or I have no value and nothing to contribute to the conversation, like I'm subhuman. And those stories are just stories. They're not real. But we only learn by doing. Uh, that may be an exaggeration, but I really believe that doing is the way we learn fastest. And if you pick up the phone and force you to do something that's really not native to you, that's really actually quite audacious, uh, and you do it a few times, it's suddenly, it's like public speaking. Everyone says public, more people fear public speaking than death. Were you afraid of your TED talk? Um, I, I was always horrified of public speaking. I actually enjoy it now. Um, the things that you worry about, uh, no one else is worried about. It's crazy because we think we are the universe, but no. Um, people are rooting for you. We see that all the time in performances, whether it's public speaking or you know, singing or whatever it might be, athletes, you name it. We want people to win. If you can just lay those stories down long enough to take some action, you grow a new muscle very quickly. It's not terrifying. It's actually um, appreciated and it's the fastest path to from A to B. Gary, you're a former attorney turned Hollywood producer, criminal defense attorney, correct? Correct. Okay. I'm sure you've seen some good sides of people and maybe some not so good sides. From what you've seen, how true is it that screenplays are stolen, that ideas are stolen or ideas really can't be stolen? Well, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say ideas cannot be stolen. But in my experience, it's extraordinarily rare. Um, I see a lot of writers very concerned about it. And my, my advice to them is, by all means, protect your work. Your IP needs to be protected. You've worked hard. So at a minimum, you want to put a copyright notice on it, but you also want to register it for copyright, which are different, right? And for extra, an extra layer frosting on the cake, you might want to register it with the Writers Guild of America. After that, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, uh, I've, I personally never, the kinds of things that I'm concerned about are not theft of intellectual property uh, so much as unfair dealings, right? It's a totally different beast. Um, but, but actual theft of whether it's an idea or uh, an existing screenplay or teleplay um, I've never personally actually had that experience. I've been in the business a lot of years. I know it happens only because I read about it once a decade in, the, in, in a trade paper that so-and-so claims X happened. Um, but I wouldn't be concerned about it. My attitude was always when I was managing a young writer, uh, I want the world to read this. So I'm willing to, I, I'll make a million copies, I'll hire a helicopter and I'll drop it out over the city of LA and let everybody read this beautiful script. Um, because I don't believe they're going to steal it. Um, uh, so I think there's a difference between protecting your work and worrying about it. And um, 
you know, on, 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 the only thing I would add on the flip side of that is don't be too casual about where you invest your time and thus your, where you, uh, how you disseminate your script. So while I was joking about the helicopter, I'm joking. It's, you know, you really want to choose wisely how you use your time, who you invest your time in meeting. Um, and if you do that well, then the other becomes sort of a non-item. You know, if you're, if you're careful about who you are building as your, you know, your professional infrastructure, then I wouldn't give a second thought to it. Um, I think it's, it's very hard to steal and get away with stealing intellectual property. It's a very close-knit business. Um, and if it were to happen, there are protections, um, but you can't stop it. So why worry about something you can't stop? Well, from reading the comments of some of our videos, you know, people have taken a lot of detail and, and just time to recount their stories or a story of a friend of theirs, where a lot of it sounds very similar, where they go into pitch somewhere and then a very similar idea comes out, usually with names changed, but sometimes people said that stuff hadn't really been totally changed. So I, I tend to think most of those stories were true, but I have no way to personally verify that. I'm sure that is actually more common than the theft of existing scripts. I, I also think people need to realize that ideas I don't know that ideas were ever all that tremendously valuable, but in today's world, less so. Um, and I would suggest, I, I would advise people not to be so excited about their idea that they're busy pitching as an idea all the time to everyone they in, encounter. It's actually a bad practice. If you have an idea that's, that's so exciting to you, then put on the brakes and write it. And then you can protect it. But ideas that, you know, if you're constantly saying, oh, I have this wonderful idea, let me tell you about my idea. Um, don't be surprised if somehow some version of that seeps into someone's consciousness intentionally with, with malice or not and finds a life somewhere else. Uh, you've invited that. Um, you know, I think you have your inner circle that you know and you trust and you can bounce ideas with them. That's fine. That's different. But I'm talking about people who are, I got an email from someone two days ago who had been at a meeting with these two gals in Malibu. This young guy was at a meeting with these two gals and he pitched them this idea. He's written, he's never written a screenplay, but he's written a couple of books apparently. I don't know the details. And they said, oh, well, maybe Gary. And I get an email saying, I have this wonderful idea, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I wrote him back and I said, I, I really am not sure what you're asking me. Uh, from what you're saying, it sounds like there is no script. And he wrote back and he said, no, it's, but I thought maybe if I wrote a treatment, you'd read it. I was like, oh my gosh. Um, you know, I, I really would, would encourage you. You're a natural writer, apparently. You've published books. Write the screenplay. Um, cause this idea of disseminating ideas and, and, and treatments, the, the, no one can grab hold of that. There's no real concrete outcome of great value that you might anticipate coming from that. So why do it? So don't worry about pitching ideas. If you really feel 
so connected to something, actually spend time with the screenplay, get it registered, get it copyrighted, and then go from there. Don't ask for permission and tiptoe around. Don't wait for the universe to bless you unless there's a specific outcome where it makes sense. And that happens all the time. I might want to pitch an idea uh, in the confines of uh, you know a, a close relationship that I might have with, let's say, another producer or with a writer. Say, so here's the here, I want to develop. Uh, you know, here's an idea. Um, does this excite you? Is this something you'd be interested in working on with me? That's one context, and it makes perfect sense because it has to be birthed. We all birth stories out of thin air. There's nothing, and then there's a story, sure. and then there's a screenplay. So along that trajectory, there are times when we want to find people that we want to draw into the process. Um, but to pitch it just to let people know that we're excited about something and we're working on something, um, you know, again, if it's if it's someone you know and trust, fine. But I wouldn't make a habit of pitching ideas, and I won't even use the word pitch because that presumes something. It's a you know term of art, but I wouldn't necessarily be sharing hither and yon, an idea that you really do are serious, you have serious intention that you're gonna actually craft that into a project, into a screenplay or a teleplay. I would I would be a little bit, I'd, 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 at least at a minimum, you should create a treatment and copyright it. And you know, if you wanna batten down the hatches and be pitching the idea, that's okay, but really document it, protect it, and now you have a basis for uh, a claim should that rare occurrence happen, which is that someone actually steals your idea. Gary, you mentioned you were more worried about unfair dealings. What does that mean? Well, not everybody's well behaved. Uh, Hollywood's no exception. Um, I, you know, so there are. We all say we have war stories, right? And and certainly there have been. All right, I'll give you a, an example. Um, I try not to dance around it. So it's there are many versions of it. Here's one version. One version is uh, an agent calls me and says, I have a hip pocket client. Um, would you meet with her? Absolutely. I'm delighted to meet with her. Um, I asked for a little bio, biographical material, maybe anything she's written, whether it's a screenplay or not. Just to, So I, I welcome her. She comes for a meeting. And she's absolutely fascinating, really funny and bright. It's hysterical. Her family is remarkable. And she, um, I won't get into it because maybe it's identifiable. But anyway, there's something very unique going on. It's, but the family is eccentric and brilliant. And um, uh, so she, she's just, I always ask a lot of questions. So she's filling me in on this whole family history and her personal journey after college and this and that. And the other thing, and I said, this is all great. Okay, great. So an hour into it, I said, would you mind, terribly, if I pitch you a story? And she's like, okay. And all I did was I took everything she had just told me, which she would never have conceived of as a story worthy of the big screen, and I pitched her a comedy, because it was like an intelligent comedy, like brilliant. And I pitched it back to her as a feature idea. And you could see her eyes getting saucer wide, very excited, like, oh my God, that's my family story, that's me. And she said, I love it. I said, okay, so here's the thing. You said you're going back home for a visit. So uh, I would love to ask, not as a homework assignment, but just, you know, if you would, gather up the local newspaper publisher, 
gather up a bunch of the editorials, copies of the paper, bring back your yearbooks from school, bring back these A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and let's dig into this. This could be a lot of fun. Uh, and she was all excited, like, this is amazing. Yes, I want to do this. This is great. I said, thank you for coming by. She, I said, call me, you know, just be in touch when you're back. She said, I'll be gone three weeks. So four weeks go by, five weeks go by, and I think, you know, I'm going to call her agent. And I called her agent. I said, um, you know, so-and-so was so lovely. And we, I, I know we talked about it, and it was such a great meeting. And she was going to be gone three weeks, and she said she'd be in touch when she got back. And I haven't heard from her. I just want to make sure, is everything okay? And the agent said, well, I have good news and bad news. She said, the good news is that the project that you discussed with her is now set up. And I said, let me guess at the bad news. I'm not involved. And she said, yeah. Mm. And she gave me a reason. The reason in that instance was, well, I took it to a senior vice president and she has some people with deals and she needed to feed a project to one of their people that are under contract. And I said, no, that's lovely of you to try and find a reason to make me feel better, but it doesn't because I know the only reason I'm not involved is because you didn't want me involved. Had you said there was a producer on it, it never would have occurred to an executive to think otherwise. Um, so there, look, these things happen. And over the course of several decades, you're going to have a multiple of these stories. Lost opportunities, uh, uh, people who be, be, be just exercise poor judgment. Um, omit information. Omit information. Um, uh, act what they think may be in their self-interest that may or may not be true. Um, you know, I've... I've um, I've set up projects at studios on a handshake with the under verbal understanding with an agent, different from the story I just told, uh, that they wouldn't close the, you know, uh, they wouldn't paper the underlying rights to the script on behalf of their writer client until my producing deal was at least codified as an email informally, right? Um, and I've had that violated. Now you think to yourself, how would a person do that? because they were gonna get a commission on my fee, right? A single project commission. Well, it makes no sense that they would chop my knees off because it's gonna cut my fee in half, but they do it. Um, and I'm not, it's like, I still got a movie made. I've still made a great fee, right? Uh, was I happy about it? No. But, you know, you can't, here's the thing. I trust people and I would much rather go through life very, very occasionally being disappointed rather than going through life mistrusting people and saying, you got to sign, you know, everything has to be buttoned down and I expect you're going to behave badly. No, because the truth is that I can tell you stories, but they're a, they're, they're a, they're a needle in the haystack of my experience over the course of my years in the business. Most people behave reasonably well. And it's on us, I do think it's incumbent on us to be really clear and state aloud what we care about and what we expect. And if we're uncomfortable, then just do a one-page memo. I mean, there is a lesson. I'm too trusting. I know that. Um, but there's a way not to have that be 
your experience on a consistent basis. It's, you know, if you stay in any business long enough, you're going to have a couple of disappointments, but they're not life altering. One hopes. Gary, why do you say talent comes second to marketing for anyone trying to make it in Hollywood? We can never underestimate talent. Craft is everything, but it's not everything. Meaning, fundamentally, Hollywood is, 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 is not a meritocracy. It's not always the best talent that rises to the top. It's not the best projects that get financed and, and, and produced and bought. Um, it's, it's often based on who has the best relationships. Um, so while it's really important, and I trust that most creatives who really want to make it in the business are steadfast, they're committed, they're studying, they're writing multiple scripts, they're, they're always improving. It's a, it's a process, it's a learning. So you're always getting better at your craft and I, and I, I don't underestimate the value of that. So talent's important, but talent that is um, not connected up with some form of um, effective marketing idea, an action plan, some kind of a roadmap to make sure that you and your body of work get noticed, it can't live in isolation. Talent has to be have a, have a platform. It has to be announced to the world and marketed. And I think that too many writers um, tend to ignore the, the, the business side, the marketing side in favor of being very uh, committed to their writing and, and, and hoping to get an agent. Being, in other words, being passive in the face of what in any other industry would be considered perhaps unrealistic. So I think talent is not to be underestimated. It's, 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 um, it's why we're all here. But the talent needs, um, it needs a companion energy so that you are not a best kept secret. Does that have to do with a biz dev versus the sales mindset? Does that have anything? Yeah. I mean, I, it, 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 certainly I think in a way it does. The, so the, the, you know, the, the salesperson is, is someone who's working against quota within a given time horizon in there. And they're looking for a specific result, which is a sale. Uh, their whole approach is geared toward uh, getting, getting the sale. Um, the, the, biz, the biz dev person has a totally different job definition, a different, there's a different prism or lens that they're looking through. They're looking, it's like the difference almost between in the old version, agency and management. One was like income driven, commission driven, and the other was commission driven, but it was really about developing the talent, longer term mindset. In business, the biz dev people, people with that responsibility set, are really looking at how do I nurture and develop the future business? And that's not about making sales today. That's about getting to know their business, about getting to know their customer, about getting to know their needs, their wants, and how we can develop a mutually beneficial relationship. It's being fundamentally other focused. It's not about what I need today. It's about how can I help you now and into the future? Let's, let's, let's create that pathway so that I lock in a sense of loyalty and a deeper understanding, and then we can build together. So there's an, it's, it's investment minded as opposed to sales minded. 
And I've used that analogy for, yeah, certainly for creatives. Like, you know, be curious, be a business development person, build relationships, build toward a future without the urgency, without the anxiety. There's no stress in that. There's no need in that. Now it's just a gift of genuine curiosity about the other and not keeping yourself a secret, share who you are and what you do and why you do it, why you care. What, what was the first moment when you knew you, you had to have a create, you know, go down this path and be a creative professional? Christy Dryling, she yes, wrote LOL. Yes, Christy's a dear friend. Yeah, and I found her book um, accidentally uh, somehow, and it was really fascinating to read, especially about her upbringing. And she yeah. talked about a poverty mindset. And I'm curious how we can all fall into that trap and maybe not even realize it. Yeah, well, I think it's very common. Look, I think that we're unfortunately, I, I won't say miseducated, I'd say undereducated. I think there are, you know, in our system, in our culture, there are a lot of what I consider really um, essentials that we're simply not, they're not in our curriculum, that we're not taught. We're not taught financial literacy. We're not taught mindset. We're not taught success principles. Um, it, 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 it hasn't yet found its way into the body politic that is our educational system. Um, and I think that a lot of people do fall into a poverty mindset. They're, you know, it's we are um, we are fed a steady diet through the internet, through the class, traditional media, what have you, of of uh, sensational stories because that's what sells. Um, and it's often fear based. Uh, and fear is powerful medicine, and most people are not immune to it. There's very few people who can see over that hedgerow and stay centered and stay present and stay committed to their vision and their and 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 what what's theirs to do. Um, and we see that you know COVID, we see it you know like there's a uniform response amongst most people to bad news, and we see it all the time. Um, and I think it sort of degrades our sense of manifest destiny and our vigor and our determination. Of, and, and belief in what's possible. Applying the poverty mindset to being active, pitching, working on projects, not giving up, because that poverty mindset can permeate into other areas. It's not just financial poverty. It's also sort of lack of opportunity, the belief that you can't actually make something happen. It doesn't have to actually mean monetary value. Right. So yeah. how, how, do we, how do we get ourselves out of that? Because some mm -hmm. people could come from some you know a stable middle class environment or upper middle class they could probably still possess that poverty mindset being told maybe you can't make a career out of this find a find a stable position where you know yeah. there's a pension very few jobs still have pensions but people often turn away from what's possible or, or, or from actual career choices because they don't know how how am i going to make that a reality and my understanding of life is it's really not that important to understand how. What's really important is to understand what you want, be really clear about what you want, and very clear about why you want it. And at that point, the how is, you know, like a collaborative effort between you, the universe, and seeking out the people who know the how. They've been down that path. And finding your mentors and finding your collaborators, finding your partners, whatever it might be. 
But it's, if you can't go in with that clarity, that story that's really true and clear and persuasive about it, mostly to yourself, if you believe it, others will believe it, right? That's, that's really persuasive about what it is that you want, why you want it, um, and what you're willing to do for it, that you're committed to it. The how just becomes the gap that needs to be filled in with information and relationships. And that's all available. It's the determination. And I think a lot of people get, get stopped before they get in the game because they don't think it's possible. They think it's too hard. They don't know how. They have all these ideas because it's easy not to believe in yourself. It's easy to stay in your comfort zone is another way of saying it. Um, it's, it. It takes a certain amount of courage to step out and do the thing that you fear others may judge you for, and by the way, that you may fail at, right? Um, so it's easier to be safe and stay in your comfort zone and not take that risk, but, the, but it's really not. Because we only have one life. And regret is a terrible, terrible thing. Questioning yourself is a terrible. Not believing in yourself is um, not being willing to take risk and bet on yourself first. Um, it's like chopping off an arm. You know, it's just not a good way to treat yourself. Um, and and if you surround yourself with no matter what your background, and I granted, it's not an equal playing field. I think all souls are created equal, people are not. People's backgrounds and experiences are so, so, so different. And, um, but I think we do have, we, we see so many examples of it. That kind of courage that makes people rise above a circumstance, say, I'm so committed to this. And no matter what my experience or what my background, I am gonna find the people who are more successful, who are in the direction I wanna move in, and I'm gonna go there. I'm gonna make them my target and my compatriots and what have you, my mentors. I think it, it just, you know, most people aren't natural born leaders and they don't necessarily, I read a book years and years ago called The Slight Edge. Jeff Holson, I think is the author. And in that book, there was really, it's, he talks about habits, but the thing that makes it come to mind is there's a moment in the book when he talks about a sociological study that was done that determined that by the age of five, which I is what, first grade, that by the age of five, a child has on average heard the word no 40,000 times. And he's heard, that same child has heard the word yes 8,000 times. So literally five times the gravity holding that belief system, that human being down, as there is a yes energy uplifting or elevating or thinking, oh, these things are more possible for me. And um, that really stuck, obviously it stayed with me. I read that book years and years ago because I thought, my God, the math of that is really a heavy weight. So I think the, one of the keys is really take yourself out of your, the, the other comfort zone is don't necessarily settle for those who are your current tribe or community or the people you hang with, right? Like really make a decision that you're gonna get with people who are the doers, not the dreamers, with the people who will believe in you, not the ones who will judge you. Like really consciously say, I deserve better. And I don't wanna say it's like fake it till you make it because I actually think everyone deserves it.
But if you're willing to go after what you think you can grow into, what you deserve, increase your capacity, find the people who are going to say, yeah, we support you. We not only don't judge you, we encourage you. What does a successful screenwriting career look like? Well, everyone's going to define it differently because everyone's needs are different. Everyone's psychology is different. But what I would say is anyone who can survive by focusing the majority of their energy on getting better at and deeper anchors inside the film and TV business, that's success. How much you earn is, is you know, your, what you need to earn to be successful. And for example, is it successful for someone to be hard at work as a writer while doing a day job at a, an agency or at a production company or at a studio or the like? I think yes, because they're making all those relations. I mean, that's so important. Like if someone's gonna have to have a day job to help support the writing or, or supplement what they're earning on the writing side, do it by working in the business and make relationships because that's the piece that otherwise is generally missing. Like to me, that's a successful model. Um, but in terms of earning, yeah, you, you know, some people they're thrilled if they can make twenty five thousand a year. Some people are only going to be happy if they're making a hundred thousand or more a year. It's hard to say, um, but you want to get yourself. Um, you want you want to earn for your you want to option projects. You want to sell projects. You want to get hired to do a rewrite, an adaptation, whatever those things might be. And I think that's you know partly what you should be you know focused on when you're spending a lot of your time focusing on creating the scripts, your spec work. But you need to be out there shaking those trees. That's what the relationships bring you. That's the kind of opportunity that comes in the door if you are activist, uh, whether it's through a job or just reach, you know, being determined to expand your network. So it's, it's writing, it's doing one job, but also keeping in my mind, I'm gonna be looking for other jobs at the same time because I know this one, is going to pay me soon and then I'm going to be out of a job again. It's, it's that kind of mindset. It's like I'm... Yeah, I mean, we're all freelancers, uh, or many of us uh, creatives are freelancers. And you have to have that mindset that, oh, I need, if it's not the most predictable income, then I have to be very activist about inviting more opportunity in. Um, and... Um, I, you know, I, I think it's a game of numbers. It's a game of inches. Like the more people that know and that you articulate, you've got to speak it into the world. So you've got to tell a lot of people, right? To get a job, you've got to tell a bunch of people. This is what I'm looking for. Um, I'm looking for adaptations. I'm looking to do rewrites. I'm looking for it. While, of course, I'm writing my specs and I want to option them. I want to sell them. I want to get them financed. I want to get them produced. But over here, this is the kind of work that I'm looking for. If you hear of anything, Introduce me, mention me, right? Uh, it's going to take some time. You build that up, but you build a number, an, a, enough people talking about you, aware of you, who've read your work and think well of you. Um, I mean, I can give you plenty of examples. There's a writing team that, that you know, one was, one was formerly, uh, is a producer, but very gifted, put her together with another writer uh, that I've worked with in the past. And, all through COVID, they've been hired. Like, I think they're on their fourth project. I'm only one of the four, but I hired them on a, on a project and got private financing to get them WJ minimum. So 
It's, it's finding a support system. It's really putting out into the water. You have to talk about it. You have to, you know, it's not going to happen on its own. Um, so yeah, you're, you've got to be, you've got to be your own best advocate. You got to just tell the world and everybody you meet and not, not blather it at Starbucks. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, again, being a little bit more focused than that. Well, I guess you could do that, but yeah, you, can, you never you can, know. Yeah. You can hold up a sign at Starbucks. <laughs> Best piece of advice you've ever received. Simple question. I realize it, but I mean, it's profound, but it's not profound. Um, we talked earlier, you know, in my, in, in my past, uh, in San Francisco, I was a criminal defense lawyer, and it was an absolutely brilliant experience. The people that I met, the things I was exposed to, the community that I served. It, it, you know, if, if I, I've often said, if our, if our life is a book, that was one of the best chapters I'll ever know. It wasn't necessarily my calling in the sense that it was a perfect fit for my temperament. I didn't want to do it into, well into my adulthood, but I'm so grateful for it. It taught me a lot. When that came to a close, and I knew the day it came to a close, it was I was done. Um, I was very nervous because the person I most admire, my hero, my best friend was my dad. And I had to go now tell my dad, uh, not just that I was quitting a job, but that I was quitting a career. Because I really didn't want to be an attorney beyond that choice that I had made. So I went to my dad and we I pulled him out of his business and we got to go have a bite or a, something, a drink. And, um, and we sat down at this place and I was so nervous. What was his reaction going to be? And finally, I said, Dad, you know, we're here because there's something really important I want to share with you. He said, what is it? I said, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm quitting my job. And I'm quitting the law. It's not what I want to do. And literally in that moment, my father, without missing a beat, smiled. Something was already wrong. <laughs> he smiled and he looked at me and he said, that's great. And I was just like stunned. It was like, I expect parental lecture number, what have you, about the investment of time and money and this is respectable and all those typical things. And I, and I said, dad, I just, that's not what I expected. And I actually asked him why, why do you say that? Why is it great? Uh, and he said, because I don't think you've been happy. And I think you should go find what excites you and whatever that is, I think that's what you should go do. And it was like the, the utter simplicity and heart and humanity of that moment, as simple as that statement was, I was just cowed. It like took me to my knees. It was like, oh my God, I know that you're wise. I know that you're an amazing dad, but you've just upped the game. And that's what I would say to people. And the other is a quote, which I'm going to read because I don't want to get it wrong. It's from, I mean, after all, you don't want to misquote William Faulkner of all people. So William Faulkner had this wonderful quote that I've always loved. Always dream and shoot higher than you know you can do. Don't bother just to be better than your contemporaries or your predecessors. Try to be better than yourself. That's the game. 
You know, it's that like hundred day thing. Every day I'm going to wake up. And I just want to be 1% better than the me that was yesterday. Were you working for a firm? I was working as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. It was a foundation in, uh, in, in what was the ghetto of San Francisco. It was called Baby Hunters Point. So there was the Baby Hunters Point Foundation that um, about 125 people in the center was the sort of linchpin, the sexy sort of fundraising piece, which was criminal defense. So we represented the indigent adults of that geography in lieu of the public defender. They were ours. And then we had alongside that, um, we had the, the, the social workers and we had the um, drug rehabilitation program and we had the job skills retraining program and we had all of these, the investigators we had. The idea was a holistic um, solution for this beautiful community that was very beleaguered in many ways. Keep the families together, the kids in school, the guys out of jail, etc. And um, our chief counsel was named Richard Bancroft. Richard Bancroft, I was so intimidated by this man when we first met. Basso profundo voice, tall, good-looking, African-American, older, a civil rights leader in the South before LBJ coined the phrase civil rights. Uh, he'd been a president, a national president of the NAACP. He'd seen life that I couldn't even imagine. And he was our chief counsel. And then we had a few attorneys and then a couple of schlubs like me. But then we had all these other services, these human services to serve this beautiful community. Um, and for a kid who really had never spent time in the projects or in the criminal justice system, certainly it was eye opening. Uh, and it was a perfect, it was a perfect it was a perfect dance. It was a perfect marriage for me at that time. These people became my family. They became my teachers. I learned more in my very first year of interning for them than I learned in three years of law school. It was extraordinary. Yeah. They're still there. Did you see Pursuit of Happiness? That takes place in San Francisco, correct? Yeah. 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 Great film. Great mm -hmm. story. Excellent. Um, yeah, extraordinary real story. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, um, you know, as they say, the best of times, the worst of times. Right. I loved, I loved, I loved every day that I spent there. And emotionally, I was a wreck almost every night. Yeah, that's, I wasn't, I wasn't built for criminal defense. I couldn't separate. You know, I wasn't a great chess player. I wore it on my sleeve a little bit. Sure. Yeah. But again, it gives you just insane levels of appreciation for how diverse this life experience can be. And just the unexpected challenges and, and joys, you know, like that was one of the most joyful communities I've ever experienced in my life. Do you ever go back? I'm sure. Has it been gentrified by now? Maybe. Um, yes and no. Not really. I mean, it's 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 such a physically 
it's 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 literally you cross the bridge to get to it. You don't go there unless you mean to go there. Mm. So when when I say it's segregated, I mean it like literally physically is its own distinct area um, out by the old shipyards. Um, but the truth is, I could be wrong because you know, precious as land is, let alone in San Francisco, maybe it's been gentrified. I haven't been up. You know, Harlem's been gentrified. Maybe maybe a hundred point been gentrified. I haven't been up to see it in, oh God, I don't know, 15 years mm. or more. Yeah. So you had the lunch with your dad. He gave you his blessing, so to speak, even though you already had this plan. And then you gave your notice or you had already given your notice at that time. Um, I had, I, I had let people know it wasn't like I walked in, gave my notice and walked out the door. These were family. It was really heart-wrenching for me to leave. Um, but yeah, I couldn't not. And there, there were some personal things that went on that, that just made it impossible for me to be doing that work. Um, but it was like, uh, yeah, you know, it's, uh, there, when I went to law school, I went to Golden Gate University Law School which was actually directly across the street from my dad's place of business. And everybody knew my dad. And it was like, it was, it was just so perfect. Anyway, my first year of law school, I met a gal who was in my class. She was um, probably about my age back then. Single mom, two boys, MSW degree, and a private social work practice that was hers. Oh, wow. And she was a full-time first-year law student. Rosario, her name was Rosario, African-American, big personality, smart as a whip. And I remember being, at first, like, you know, I, I, I didn't approach her because she was like superwoman, right? How do you have an MSW and two kids and be a full-time law student and just... How is that possible? Well, we did become friends. And one day she approached me um, halfway through our first year, I think it was. And she said, Gary, you, you know, I know you've, I hear you've worked out at Bayview Hunters Point and, you know, you're close to, the, to them. Um, I'd love to meet them. Can I go out there with you sometime? And I said, of course, absolutely. So I took her out on uh, every Tuesday was staff meeting day when everybody's there. And I said, let's go out on a Tuesday, you'll, you'll meet everybody. So I took her out, um, introduced her, walked in, introduced her to everybody, schmoozed away, you know, got into the staff meeting, came out, schmoozed with everybody, hung out, made sure she met everybody who was there. Um, and since I loved being there, I wasn't in a hurry to leave. Anyway, finally, it's time to go. We get my little Carmen Gia Volkswagen to head back to downtown San Francisco. Uh, at, and drop her off late afternoon. So suffice to say, Rosario was not a shy retiring wallflower. She was um, she was full of life. We get in my car and I start driving and I've been driving now for several minutes and she hasn't uttered a syllable. We come to a red light and I stop and I look at her. She's looking straight ahead. And I said, Rosario, is everything okay? 
you haven't said a word. And privately, I never experienced that, right? And she turned and she looked at me and very slowly, she said, those people really love you. And it took me a minute for the dimension of that to sink in, right? Um, it was, it was, I think she was a bit surprised by the dimension of our relationship. Um, and I say, I tell you that, I share that anecdote um, really to describe how meaningful that was to me and how hard it was to leave them. It wasn't hard to leave the practice of law at all, but it was hard to leave the, the people. Um, but I will say this, just much like being a kid in the 60s in San Francisco and being at UC Berkeley in the heyday and putting on the, con you know, and, and then that experience at Baby Hunters, those are all related in the, you know, in the daisy chain of my life. Those are all pivotal moments that really have uh, everything to do with forming my worldview, how I see things, what I care about. It was an extraordinary time. I was very, I'm still to this day grateful that I have the history that I have. Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty blessed. And here we are in Hollywood. Not bad. Excited for, I don't know, I think, I, th I think we're at a, a really exciting moment. Like that, for me, when the studios became purchased and, you know, Vivendi bought Universal and Sony bought Columbia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and they became populated with a different group of people. Um, and the budgets went up in the $20 million star and all of those things align with the demise of the Indies. So those, I don't know, 25 or more robust companies that were putting out as many films, as, if not more than the studios collectively, right? Um, who were either broken up for their library value or just went bankrupt or whatever happened, right? So the Hemdales and... In, and the Vestrons and all of those wonderful companies. And suddenly there was no independent cinema. The studios became more corporate. They made half as many films with double the size budgets. And there was this contraction moment. And it was, it's a time when I started to take walkabouts and do other things alongside this thing called producing. And suddenly, in because of what's happened in recent years, we now have something that is so much more robust than that ever was. The demand for stories, the, the, the size of the appetite and the number of series and films that are, that are needed and being, and actually being, you know, I mean, COVID aside, the, the, obviously production's been quashed for the year, but, but the number of projects that are being developed and produced overall for all of these streamers who have a lot of diverse appetites to feed it's absolutely stunning to me. And I think it's a great time to refocus our energies and you know, be, be in the game and figure out this, this new landscape.